The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Although for this podcast journey, we're rechristening you all as Geeks in Space! That's right. This time around, we're digging into one of the Wizards spinoff magazines that dared to keep watching the skies in more ways than one, tackling such pop culture properties as Star Wars, and Star Trek, the X-Files, and many more. Of course, we're talking about sci-fi invasion, and uh, Joining us for our behind-the-scenes exploration of this publication is a former wizard staffer who acted as captain of the ship during this magazine's five-issue mission to newsstands. From Robot Chicken and surely sipping on a tall glass of Romulan Ale, it's Doug Goldstein. How you doing? Doing great. How you doing? I'm excellent. I'm excited to get into this piece of uh, wizard history. You know, we've mentioned here and there uh, sci-fi evasion. People say, oh yeah, I remember buying that when it came out. I'm excited to, to bring this to people that maybe have not heard of it before. So first up, the second issue of Wizard featured a photo of you playing the part of a reader submitting a question to the magazine, wherein you were credited as Spock Goldstein. And uh, we shared this on social media. And you claimed to have no relation to this individual. Uh, but tell us, for you then, this Doug Goldstein, where did your journey as a science fiction fan begin? It started uh, before even I was talking as a baby, I think, because my parents are always watching Star Trek and my earliest memories are of them watching Star Trek together. And even by age four, I one of my earliest memories is whining and, and complaining that I needed the Mego Enterprise Bridge playset with a transporter. I think I got it. I think I have memories of playing with it. So yeah, it's, it's been since day one. That is interesting. And I'm glad it was a family affair. That's awesome to hear. Sure. Now, what was the state of science fiction all those years later in 1997 that you think made fertile ground for this new science fiction magazine to make an attempt at infiltrating the newsstands? What was going on? What was in the air? Well, I wish people could remember what life was like in the 90s. It was such an exciting, hopeful time. There was peace in the world. We just invented the internet. Everything was great. We just saw the special editions of the Star Wars original trilogy, which we had mostly very excited responses to. And then, oh my God, in something that seems so passe nowadays, but back then was revolutionary, they're working on brand new Star Wars movies. Oh my God. This is, this is back when there weren't TV shows about Star Wars left and right. There weren't a movie like twice a year. This was, oh my God. And we we're all like, yeah, let's capitalize on this. Let's, let's have fun. We all have science fiction. Let's do a magazine about it. What do you remember about pitching that idea to, to Garib and the people upstairs? Well, at the time I was running the specials department, which was all the one shots. We did a magazine every month. We did a magazine about Top Cow comic books. We did a magazine about Superman, Batman. Beanie Babies, you know, it just, all of our magazines started as specials, Toy Fair, Inquest, they all started as one shots that, that we all worked on. And this being my passion, I was like, guys, let's try a magazine about science fiction. I mean, it's right up our nerd alley, all the comic fans, Star Wars and Star Trek fans. It's, it fits into our wheelhouse. We can do it. It's going to be awesome. And they were like, yeah, whatever, fine. Let's, let's give it a shot. Wasn't even a hard sell at that point. Okay. But what do you remember then about choosing the title of Sci-Fi Invasion? Is that something that you had in your mind as it was being pitched? Or was that just in a meeting? Or is there an origin to that? Well, we threw up tons of names on a giant marker board. And I really wanted to focus on something that was exciting and interesting. Not just like, you know, Sci-Fi Report or Sci-Fi Monthly. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. That I don't know what that is. But Invasion, it sounds like something's coming. You're a part of it. And, and we really got ballsy and threw an exclamation point at the end of it. That's how crazy we were. <laughs> that one seemed, it seemed to be the most exciting option. Yeah, it definitely stands out. That exclamation point, that's something else, I'll tell oh, you. Yeah. Now, uh, Wizard, like you said, was already publishing Toy Fair and Inquest and all sorts of specials at this time. Was it hard for you to round up contributors to fill the pages of this first issue? You know, what's funny is not the way you think, because a lot of our comic book journalists we're also, you know, Star Wars and sci-fi fans. And 
if they were busy and then we gave them an assignment saying, hey, here's this great article about whatever, you know, they're like, oh, I love that. Okay, I'll fit it in. And there were some times we needed some super nerds. Like I remember we went on Craigslist because Craigslist was this new thing. And we're like, maybe we can try this. And I remember posting, hey, we're this magazine company. We need a writer that is an expert in X-Files. And we need them to know this, this, and this, and blah, blah, blah. Are you that person? Please get back to me. And that's actually how we found Scott Brick, who at the time became one of our, our greatest writers and is now, to this day, one of the most powerful people in audiobooks. He probably narrated many of the audiobooks that you've listened to if you do listen to audiobooks. Wow, I did not know that. That's a fun fact. <laughs> I'm right. curious, in those planning stages, that is, you're, you know, finding freelancers and giving assignments to people in the office, did you guys have a specific plan to set yourselves apart from a magazine like Starlog, you know, which had already covered the same territory for 20 years at this point? Well, we saw things like Starlog as old school and, and kind of what I said about looking for a great name of the magazine kind of was a mission statement, make this stuff exciting because we love it. And the same way we had fun with comics and we treated it with a reverence, that's what we wanted to do here. And magazines like Starlog were far more serious than that. And we, we really just wanted to have fun. I think we accomplished that to a certain extent. I think we still dipped our toes into the serious analytical well a bunch. So it's kind of a mix, but it we did go into it knowing that there was a lot of competition already, which was relatively new for the company because, you know, Wizard, there was nothing like Wizard when it started up. And yes, there were a few toy publications before Toy Fair, but none of them were, were fun like Toy Fair was. And Inquest came out soon after Magic became popular. There was, there was very little competition for that as well. You know, I think there was Scry Magazine, but again, Inquest was fun. And we thought, yeah, okay, sci-fi, there's a ton of competition, but will be fun. And in your mind, because obviously you said, you know, you're in charge of the special publications at this point. If it was going to go monthly, like all the other specials had at this point, they had all been successful. Were you prepared to go with it on that journey all throughout? Would you have taken over and said, hey, okay, somebody else can handle specials. I'm on sci-fi invasion. I would have loved that. It would have been a very easy decision to say someone else, please do these Beanie Baby magazines. <laughs> Please, someone else do these Pokemon specials. I've had enough. And yeah, sci-fi would have been great. That would have been my my reason for coming to work every day. Okay, well, let's get into it. Let's let's see where the passion went as it started filling in the pages of the magazine. So the first issue of the Sci-Fi Invasion, which was the, a special issue, as you said, was released in the spring of 1997. It had a Boba Fett cover photo and the subtitle, The Guide to Science Fiction Entertainment. And now the issue came packed with a booklet of sci-fi movie previews, plus a Men in Black and a Star Wars trading card promoting those films. But I'm curious, as you looked at your possible cover subjects, was there ever any doubt that Boba Fett was going to be the first one? I don't think so. I think we knew it was going to be Star Wars. And we knew that, A, there was nothing we can do about the new the new prequel movies. They didn't release anything. And anything that came out of the new special editions weren't anything that we really wanted to put on the cover. You know, not many people like the new characters in Jabba the Hutt's big musical number. So it's not like we could focus on any of that stuff. So who's the coolest character in all of Star Wars? At that point, it was Boba Fett. I mean... Somebody once asked me, why is Boba Fett so, so popular when he's, he was on screen for like three minutes? And I'm like, well, you know, Darth Vader hired him to get Han Solo. And he did. He got him. I mean, that's that's like saying, OK, we're in the middle of World War II. Let's hire some guy to, to kidnap Hitler and bring him to Washington, D.C. And then he does it. That was Boba Fett. That was just you know, he was awesome. You know, people say he died like a punk, but he was very resourceful and he accomplished his mission, uh, you know, while he was alive. No, we don't all choose how we die. What are you going to yeah. do? Interesting thing about that cover, the actual photo, the gun goes this way, this way, but it wouldn't fit. So in Photoshop, we moved it. So it looks like he's holding it with this hand instead of this hand. And uh, we were like, is this going to be the end of our relationship with Lucasfilm? Or are they going to say, how dare you touch up a photo? I don't think they ever noticed. I think we're fine. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's pretty cool. Your design department, definitely Steve Blackwell and everybody over there are very talented. They could make those tweaks. You'd never know. You never know. 
But in this first issue, you borrowed kind of several wizard features, you know, things that were familiar. There's a casting call for a Shadows of the Empire film based on all the expanded universe novels. Junk drawer was the merchandise spotlight section. There were contest giveaways of merchandise, things like that. But honestly, peppered throughout Wizard over the years and Toy Fair also, I mean, there was just a lot of Star Wars, Star Trek talk. I mean, the X-Files got its own cover at one point. It was so popular in a Wizard half issue, things like that. So as you kind of go through it, there, there are five Star Wars features, two Star Trek articles, and three X-Files pieces. So was there a particular piece in that first issue you remember standing out, whether it was related to those franchises or to something else? Well, I mean, the issue really focused around the main article, which was um, trying to corral every little bit, every little rumor, every little news tidbit of the new Star Wars movies, because that was the main thing. That was the cocaine at the time. So, you know, in the article, I think up front, we said, look, they're not talking, but sometimes they're caught on, on a hot mic and they say something, and we are going to dig through everything that exists in the universe and find everything we know about the prequels and compile it for you here today as a jigsaw puzzle, and let's see how it comes together. And I thought that was really cool, but that actually shows off what I think became a flaw in the magazine that I don't want to jump ahead to the end, but that I think will will help understand in the end why the magazine didn't continue past a certain point. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Now, the other thing, though, in addition to those big guns, one thing I feel like maybe set you guys apart in a way, there was quite a bit of Babylon 5 content, including interviews with the series creator J. Michael Straczynski and Peter David, who wrote an episode, and there was an episode guide for the series. Like, you know, this was this competitor to Star Trek, it was seen at the time. It, but it's kind of funny because in Wizard, in the bullpen section at one point, I believe it was Scott Beatty once stated that his New Year's resolution was to give Babylon 5 a chance, but never let his co-worker Doug Goldstein know that he was allowing it to be possibly a decent series, you know? So. I didn't know he said that. And I got I to gotta email him or something and be like, whatever happened with that? <laughs> How'd it turn out? Yeah. yeah. Safe to yeah. say that, that you were the biggest fan in the office of Babylon 5 at this time? I think so. I discovered it amongst our friends, started watching it and said, oh my God, this is amazing. Showed it to Pat. Uh, McCallum, the editor-in-chief, and he was like, this is amazing. And then we watched the whole series together. That was is such an interesting show because season one was, was not good. And then they kind of did a weird relaunch in a way that worked continuity-wise, where they told the whole thing over starting at season two with a slightly different cast and makeup, and it was much better and awesome. And then seasons two, three, and four were some of the best sci-fi TV ever. And then season five was garbage for different reasons. But what's a tragedy is... The special effects really don't hold up and they were not filmed in such a way that they could be upscaled. So it hasn't been re-released in any way that modern audiences could, will ever find it or want to watch it. So it's a tragedy that this great material uh, is kind of sitting in the dustbin of history. And uh, if anyone's listening to this that is curious to watch a show that's great that no one knows about, I don't know where it is. I have no idea how to watch it. But seasons two, three, and four, Babylon 5, are top quality amazing. And I, if I am incorrect, somebody can tell me in the comments below, you know, or, or as find us on social media. But I think J. Michael Straczynski had, you know, he had a long history, obviously, in television and had done a lot of things there with some fantastic shows. But I don't believe he had broken into comics yet at this point, right? And of course, he becomes a big name later on in comics. Yeah, that always was a little strange to me because I'm like, Hey, go back and do some more Babylon 5 while you're writing comics. Um, <laughs> and I never sought out his stuff. Although Rising Stars, I did read, and that was pretty cool. But yeah, it's weird now that he's known more as a, a first comic book writing than Babylon 5 when... Babylon 5, my God, Babylon 5. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you talked about that you wanted to make sci-fi fun. So, of course, you had to bring in some of that, that humor that you guys were known for over in the Congress offices. And one of those pieces was called The Top 10 No-Nos When Dealing with Darth Vader. Yeah. Okay, so I thought we could go through and read this and see what we think. You know, the, the top 10 lists don't always age well, but I think this one, Sci-Fi <laughs> Invasion, was, uh, was a class act. So let's get into it here. It starts out with important information. Now that you've joined the Imperial forces, you're bound to meet Darth Vader someday. That's as exhilarating as it is dangerous. Follow these simple rules and you'll be okay. Number 10. Don't mumble, this is CNN. Under your breath as he walks by. He hates that. 
Doug, you want to give us number nine? Sure. Let's go back and forth. Number nine, don't tell him he's got a one-eyed snake in the trash compactor. He'll probably misunderstand and kill you. <laughs> number eight, don't push any of them buttons on his chest, especially that blue fill suit with water one. Number seven, don't point out that most of the stormtroopers in those wide angle shots are just matte paintings. Just play along and wave politely. Number six, don't say less filling. Huh? <laughs> I really wonder what percentage of reviewers even gets that reference. Uh, very old commercial. Very old Budweiser commercial. Anyway, number five, don't accept any promotion that would make you an admiral. Trust us. <laughs> number four, don't shift the Death Star into reverse from fourth gear. Mm, bad idea. Number three, don't come out of hyperspace too close to a system. Number two, don't ever call him Anakin or Pepe. Those names no longer have any meaning to him. <laughs> and number one, don't bother trying to hide them McNuggets. He's on them like white on rice. Who knew? Vader loves his nuggets. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so there's plenty of that there. Now, another thing that was actually pretty new to Wizard at this time even was the concept of the Contest of Champions, where it was last man standing more on the Wizard side. But you were pitting various sci-fi properties against each other. And Brian Douglas Ahern, a very popular artist, was bringing the battles to life. Now, highlights included... Mr. Spock defeating Darth Vader for ownership of a Nintendo 64. <laughs> you know, I reread, well, I, I perused that article for yeah. this, and I saw that we had Spock beating Vader, and I was like, maybe we were a little too irreverent in those days, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I could really back that up with facts anymore. Try to get the people talking, I guess. Yeah, we were trying to be controversial. Yeah, another fun one was Princess Leia taking a beating from Captain Janeway after she was caught eating the Captain's cinnamon rolls. Yeah. <laughs> Fits with the hairstyle. It was a great theming. I love that battle. Uh, the craziest one, though, was the Ewoks ending their conflict with the Tribbles by turning them into nuggets. Essentially, frying them up. <laughs> They're carnivores, so yeah. Uh, but this is fun stuff. We'll post this to social media so everybody can see those because that's that's great. Now, the other thing that Wizard was uh, famous for and Sci-Fi Invasion carried over was asking for a lot of reader feedback, right? You were looking to make it successful by finding out what the people thought. And uh, there was a, an ad and you were asking, does this magazine suck? And then you gave the address where people could write in and give their opinions. And so for better or for worse, this question was answered in a letter printed in issue two <laughs> of Sci-Fi Invasion. And so do you want to read it or would you like me to read it? <laughs> you know what? This hurts my feelings, even though <laughs> it didn't at the time. All right. So let's, dear Sci-Fi Invasion, I just picked up your first issue and came across your ad asking for the input and opinion of your readers which is something every magazine should do. I know that it's likely that this was more of a token gesture rather than a true desire to hear what the readers have to say. This guy was cynical and incorrect. We really wanted to hear what he had to say. Nonetheless, here's my opinion. It sucked. If I could go back to the comic shop where I picked up this piece of sin and get back the $5 I spent on it, I would. As I know, you want the reasons why my opinion has been so negative, I've listed them below. A. Unimaginative articles with no new information contained within. B, poorly written articles and bad interviews. C, a complete lack of any objectivity. It was obvious which sci-fi series or movies you liked and which you didn't. Instead of presenting the facts and letting the readers come to their own conclusions, you printed your own opinions and demanded the readers believe as you do. D, poor aesthetics. I look at your magazine and it is a convoluted mess. E, more isn't always better. Next time, and Lord knows I hope there won't be a next time, try not to take three issues worth of material and shove them into one magazine. F, wise-ass remarks. They do not work in a sci-fi magazine. Your magazine can be best described this way. Sci-fi Invasion is to SF magazines what Paula Jones is to Bill Clinton. Please don't ever do it again. A lot of dated references in there. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, so obviously there were some criticisms. Uh, yeah, not so <laughs> not so kindly written there. As you looked at the first magazine and you were getting probably other letters and other correspondence, did you feel like any of those points were valid or were you just kind of like, ah, this guy? No, no, I don't think we cared about this at all. <laughs> uh, we really did want to hear what people had to say. 
but uh, I don't think we acted on anything that this guy wrote. Uh, I mean, uh, poorly written articles. Yes, we we intentionally made our articles terrible. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I don't think this guy just got what our tone was. And I think all of our magazines have this tone of you know a complete lack of any objectivity. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna say this is awesome and that's not, and that's that's what we did. Wise ass remarks. They don't work in a sci-fi magazine. I'm I'm pretty sure we all laughed our asses off. Um, but you know, that's, that's fine. You can't please everybody. Uh, I'm not saying this guy's wrong. Um, that was his point of view. And if Blackthorn via cyberspace, oh my God, we call it cyberspace, <laughs> uh, is listening. I respect your opinions and I'm sorry that, uh, two and a half decades ago, we didn't really act on anything you said. Now, here's the thing. So the second issue of the magazine, though, was released in the summer of 1997. And this is a great one. We had a Luke Skywalker photo cover. And the polybag came packed with an Aliens movie guide. And there was like, it was like a little booklet and uh, an uh, America Online subscription disc. And it was actually space-themed, the packaging. Yeah. And then there was Outer Limits and Babylon 5 trading cards that you guys included there. Now, as the cover would tell us, the big draw of the issue was a Mark Hamill interview by Mark Shapiro, which is mostly, is kind of interesting, Hamill having to clarify that he does not mind talking about Star Wars, despite what all the tabloid newspapers were saying, apparently. But a, a true geek at heart, this is how Hamill explains himself, quote, I was really insulted when I read one of those tabloid rags that said Mark Hamill has been reduced to doing cartoon voiceover and comic books. Boy, that pissed me off. They completely missed the point that I love what I'm doing. Science fiction and fantasy are real serious business to me, and I take this stuff as seriously as anything I've ever done. Then the interview also contains a funny story about Hebel appearing in the third Wing Commander CD-ROM game with former adult film star Ginger Lynn as his co-star, that as a result, his fans started sending her her previous work on home video, and his wife did not appreciate uh, those gifts. But I'm curious, because obviously, you know, we have Mark Hamill coming to the magazine here. Have you ever had interactions with him, whether it's back then or Robot Chicken or just over the years? I'm sorry to say that the only time I did was at Robot Chicken. He was in for one of his voice records. I don't even remember which one. He's he's done a few. And I walked in just because I wanted to say hi, and I did. And I sat on the couch with him for a while, and we shot the shit, and nothing of consequence was said. <laughs> <laughs> it was just two human beings talking about whatever. And I was like, nice to meet you, man. And then I went back to work. And uh, yeah, he was just passionate about what he was doing. I think if I remember correctly, he showed me a comic book he was writing for Dark Horse Comics at the time. Uh, I want to say it was called Black Pearl, but I could be wrong. And uh, he was just a genuinely great guy. That's what I hear. I mean, you know, to the fans and to, to professionals that I've, I've heard people uh, meet with him in a professional setting. It's pretty awesome. I actually have a buddy who was at one of the, you know, the, the big Star Wars gathering conventions and Mark Hamill, you know, they, they always say like, you know, you're not allowed to take photos. You got to pay for your photos. And like Mark Hamill saw that my buddy had a camera in his hand and he, he was just leaving to go on his break. He's like, hey, you, hey, you take a picture of this. And he started posing and gave him <laughs> free pictures. And he was just like, oh, Mark Hamill, you're the best. You know? So that's great. Uh, now, Hamill's co-star, Anthony Daniels, who portrayed C-3PO, most of us know, shares his own awkward moment with Star Wars producer Rick McCallum from the set of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles in a sidebar interview that you guys include, relates the actor... I was in the men's room, and I was dressed as a sort of scientist. Rick walked in, and I kind of looked at him and he smiled. He clearly had not the slightest idea who I was, because I was in disguise. I think it made him nervous to be smiled at in the men's room. After a while of standing there, I said, So, is 3PO going to be in the prequels? After hearing my voice, Rick zipped up his fly and said, Life is good, Anthony. Life is good. And then he walked out. Leaving me to ponder, did he mean good for him or good for me? Of course, Daniels had a lot of work after that, but... I just thought that was funny that Anthony Daniels is like, I'm not even going to wait until this guy's done urinating. I'm just going to ask him right now. <laughs> and yeah, I guess, you know, if you if you want to know if you're going to be in the next bunch of biggest movies of all time, you're going to you're gonna be impatient. You're gonna it's have... the actor's life. You got to keep hustling, right? 
Yeah. Now, surprisingly, Daniels was not listed as uh, attending the Chicago Comic-Con as a guest with his fellow Star Wars alumni, you know, like Peter Mayhew and people like that. Uh, But Wizard had just purchased the convention this year, and they were bringing a lot of attention to Sci-Fi Invasion at the con as well. And I didn't know if you guys had like a separate booth there to promote the magazine, but they had in all the ads in Wizard, you know, during that few month period for the summer, they had specific sections that were devoted to sci-fi invasion meet the creators of sci-fi invasion and it literally just come out i do not think we had our own booth i have zero memories of that so like let me make up some stuff we were a hit (laughs) and uh everyone loved to see us no i only have one memory of that whole convention and it was being on a long line at the men's room for the urinal and behind me like eight people behind me because it was a very long line evan nash comes in the wrestler diesel at the time and he looks at the line, he's like, oh, what? And then he turns left and goes, oh, there's more over here. And he just pees in the sink. And I, we were all just like, uh, okay. And then he leaves, not washing his hands in the same sink he just peed in. And then we all just like, just just kind of looked at each other, went back to just waiting to pee ourselves. It was very strange. Wow, big sexy. I thought you were going to say it was Anthony Daniels. He seems to make a lot no. of appearances <laughs> in bathrooms. No, I, you know, the he didn't come to the convention, but... Myself and a few of the other editors went to a convention in Pittsburgh at the time where he and Jeremy Bullock and a few of the other actors were appearing as the the men behind the mask. I believe they had a a touring group that way. And we had breakfast with all of them. And at the time, I was roommates with Matt Senrich. He was another editor at Wizard at the time. And he and I, I think, got into an argument that the automatic litter box that I had bought for my cats was so full of poo that it had jammed. And I remember Anthony Daniels was especially disgusted to hear that and just kind of staring at me. So yeah, I, I have to assume that's his, if he has any memories of me at all, it's, it's I'm the guy who let his automatic cat litter box jam up. <laughs> no, I, I want to go into this here because you mentioned that you the prequels were all the rage, right? That's what everybody wanted to know about. The more you could put in there, the better people would be clamoring for that. But between the first two issues of Sci-Fi Invasion, there are several, like you said, speculative articles about what could be included, what might be involved, what would be the source material they'd base it on. And there was mention actually in the Mark Hamill interview about this third trilogy, right? It's like, oh, we're doing the prequels, but then there's supposed to be a series that takes place after Return of the Jedi. Can you imagine? And he says Mm -hmm. here, quote, he, George Lucas, asked one time if I'd be interested in playing the Obi-Wan type character in the last three films. I thought, well, it'd be nice to have a job lined up at the turn of the century, which obviously is exactly what happened. (laughs) But then after that, there's an article by R. Lee Brown that turns to the expanded universe novels to predict the possible conflicts that would come up in the films. And he says, quote, In the novels following Return of the Jedi, Luke created a Jedi Academy where he trades a new line of Jedi Knights. Unfortunately, several of his students haven't been able to resist the siren call of the dark side. Could this be the crisis of the last trilogy? That Anakin's son Luke, as well-attentioned as he might be, creates one, two, or a legion of of Jedi who are susceptible to the dark side and more or less that's what happened I mean it's weird because we know that Disney has kind of said oh well the expanded universe novels you know Timothy's on all of that doesn't count but obviously someone read them somebody got some ideas can you talk a little bit about how important that was like the expanded universe side of Star Wars I have to say at the time that the expanded universe novels were for hardcore fans because with some exceptions Everyone kind of agreed that they were not written that well. Timothy Zahn's books, uh, people loved them. The Shadow of the Empire novel with uh, Zizor, which surprisingly has not been uh, touched upon ever, was very interesting. Everybody loved Thrawn. But there were so many, they they almost became like the Star Trek novels that they were just pumping them out. But they were all we had at the time. You know, it's it's not like we, we could say like, oh, I didn't read that novel, but I did watch blah, blah, blah. There was no blah, blah, blah. So... You know, we we all assumed that they would be fertile ground for people to mine for the movies, the way Marvel just sucks up their comic book stories and puts them in the films. But I really think they made a huge point at the time to say, we are not touching any of this stuff. Uh, This is all not canon. I think a lot of the stuff that George Lucas had in his mind that was going to be in that part of the Star Wars history didn't match the novels, which kind of tells you that he wasn't really that hands-on with the novels. And there's there's a famous story that he didn't even want to name the capital planet Coruscant. But they had to stress upon him that because of the novels, that's what all the fans think the thing is named. And he was like, oh, fine. So 
I think it had very little impact on the new movies. And as far as Luke going to train new Jedi, I feel like that's just so obvious, like peanut butter and jelly. You know, it's like, yes, Luke was by himself at the last Jedi, at the end of Return of the Jedi. Of course, he's going to try to train new ones. And I guess training Jedi is hard. Sure, someone will be tempted by the dark side. I don't know if you can give credit to anyone that first thought of that, but because it's so... I don't want to say obvious, but of course, of course, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I definitely see what you're saying there. Still fun, though, that, you know, you could point to that and say, oh, we got some things right in here. <laughs> yep. Now, uh, one of the other features of this issue, getting back to Brian Douglas Ahern, is he did an X-Files parody comic, which is very fun. But there was also, like you were saying, sometimes you guys were hitting on more serious themes. There was a very thoughtful piece about feminism and the progressive roles of female characters in science fiction over the years. They kind of landed on there's still a long way to go but look at how far we've come with characters like ripley and things like that uh but there was also another feature on all the sci-fi themed attractions at theme parks worldwide so i have to ask did the staff actually get to travel to experience these things in person or are you guys just looking at brochures <laughs> i wish we had the budget to travel like that there was a short period of time where i was running toy fair magazine and we talked the upstairs people into letting us fly to Hong Kong to see the toys as they first came off, you know, the, the assembly lines. And, and But that was the only time we were able to, like, squeeze major travel funds out of them. So for this, it was just writers who were local or knew about it, brochures, calling the places for information. And I looked through it recently, and it's we actually talk about the soon-to-be-open Star Trek experience in Las Vegas, which is now long since closed. And I'm like, oh, my God. I remember that. That was so cool. And I would have loved to have like an all expenses paid trip out to see that. But that's not what Wizards spent his money on. Rats. This is a public service announcement, geeks. Manscaped now has beard products and is going even further with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world the leaders in below-the-waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using our code WIZARDS20 for 20% off your order plus free shipping. Now, geeks, I had such a great time growing out my beard like a Kryptonian trapped in the negative zone. You know, Zod may have been a villain, but his style was heroic. And even though my wife wanted me clean-shaven, I'm still using these awesome tools to keep my sideburns, nose, and ear hair looking sharp. But, you know, I'm doing it all starting off with the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. And it is the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft your signature look. It all starts with the cordless electric Beard Hedger. The Beard Hedger, it's tough on hair, but smooth on your face, leaving the single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time and really you aim it you put it where you want it it takes care of business it's great but it's also waterproof and it's a cordless trimmer so it's got this rotary wheel as well that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths all with one guard so no more messy drawers full of the extra add-ons all those little clips and sizing pieces the pro kit comes with four dermatologist tested formulations for your post trim care okay now this includes manscapes beard shampoo and kid conditioner, the beard oil, and the beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer your new beard. Plus, the kit has three free gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. Gotta get all those details worked out, right? With a nice beard, your face is perfectly groomed. That's all you need? Wrong. You need to keep an eye out for those tough-to-trim ear and nose hairs. So the brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin-safe technology with no tugging guaranteed. It's never been so painless to mind your man. Manholes. <laughs> and as awkward as it might be to talk about my dad's manholes, I sent him that Weed Whacker 2.0 for Christmas, and he's still enjoyed it to this day. Michael's dad's loving it. It's the perfect gift for Father's Day, all in good time. But now that you have your face looking great, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience, right? The Performance Package 4.0 now includes the Weed Whacker 2.0. That's great news! And all of the other below-the-waist grooming products Manscaped is known for your significant other will be delighted to see you covering all the bases if you know what i mean so go ahead get 20 percent off and free shipping with our code wizards20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com use our code wizards20 we've been talking about it it's time to get on it geeks always use the right tools for the job with manscaped now back to the show 
moving into the third issue here though in the fall of 1997 so this you're doing pretty good here you guys are moving along there was a cover featuring the ripley clone <laughs> from the new aliens film alien yeah. resurrection and included in that polybag was a starship troopers poster along with trading cards from star trek babylon 5 and starship troopers that stands out to me because it, it was based on an old property but that was like kind of the new thing is this gonna be like you know a new franchise and they tried they certainly did but <laughs> uh maybe not with uh using all the best parts of it but there was also in the letter section once again mutant in the air because one reader was demanding a change to the name of the magazine at this point it says dear uh sci-fi invasion god do i hate your magazine's title if you are really true science fiction fans you know that the term sci-fi is really grating and irritating for those of us who love the genre it's like calling star trek fans trekkies instead of trekkers it's outright demeaning please use the preferred abbreviation sf bad enough we got the sci-fi channel Ugh. Laura Hill, Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> I gotta say, I don't think the world Laura lives in ever existed. I don't. Yes, I, I'm vaguely familiar that some like hardcore science fiction fans use the term SF to the point where they'd be annoyed to hear the abbreviation sci-fi. Oh my God. Oh my God. And the whole, if you're a Star Trek fan and you get irked by being called a Trekkie, and not a trekker. I whatever it is that's that's bottling you up inside, you've gotta you just gotta release it and let it go and just be a happy person because we're all in the same boat. It's the boat called Star Trek fans, and it's a wonderful boat. And just chill and have a good time. Yeah, and the thing that is interesting is like we're saying, you're starting to move into new territory here with, there's a lot of reporting on upcoming science fiction films now. So there's a lot of movie hype, you know, like like we said, Alien Resurrection, the X-Files movie was in production at this point. Alien versus Predator is now being teased. And Starship Troopers, getting back to that real quick, obviously that was adapted from a beloved novel. Screenwriter Ed Newmeyer is quoted in the issue saying, I think that, what we've done is made the most lavishly produced and most expensive commercial ever made for a book. But I don't know about that, because <laughs> they're not so loyal to the book in that movie. Not at all. But the hardcore fans didn't agree, as the article states that the two things that many fans of the novel are already logging onto the internet to complain about are the absence of skinnies, a secondary alien race featured in the beginning of the novel, and the power armor worn by the mobile infantry. Yeah. I, I remember in the novel that I haven't read in a long time, they had power exosuits that would allow them to leap very long distances and fire... Um, small nu tactical nuclear weapons at the enemy, like left and right, in their in their enemy cities or whatever. And the movie was nothing like that. And so when this fella says it's really a, an ad for the book, you I hope they put a disclaimer in the movie saying, by the way, this is nothing like the book. Yeah, because yeah. my, my best friend was one of these people getting online. He loves Starship Troopers so much so that his AOL email was John Rico at AOL.com. Like that was how intense he was about it. And so he was so disappointed for those reasons and many more. But I actually, this year was my one and only a time I went to the San Diego Comic-Con in 97 and I attended the Starship Troopers panel where the cast was up there telling us how great it was going to be. I felt like they maybe had not read the novel. <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, we do a pretty good job here, I guess. A guy gets his brain sucked out. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, but speaking of the novels, like there are, you guys did pay some attention, give a few pages each issue to, you know, science fiction literature, especially things that inspired some of your favorite properties. Like you guys went through a history of science fiction, like, okay, here's how we got to where we are now. But what would you say was your connection to the world of science fiction novels? I read as much as I could. I read all the foundation novels by Asimov, all those robot novels. I read things like uh, Star Trek Troopers, Brave New World, um, Bio of a Space Tyrant by, uh, God, was that Zelazny that wrote that? Anything that caught my attention. I mean, I was a kid. This is before the internet, so we had nothing to do. I read the first 52 Star Trek novels. And I remember the last one that I read and I gave up on it. It was called Doctor's Orders. And the whole point of that novel is Dr. McCoy was in command of the Enterprise. Because Kirk was like, you don't understand how stressful this running the ship is. I'm going to put you in command. And then he's, he's captured on another planet and leaving McCoy there. And, and Scotty's like, Get out of the chair, McCoy. I got it. He's like, no, Kirk left me in charge and I'm going to do this. And I'm like, none of these characters are acting like anything close to what they really are. I don't know who approved this novel. 
And so I just was like, I, you know, they're off the rails. I can't read this anymore. But I, I read a lot. And it's, it's, it's funny that you bring this up because there were times in the magazine that there was a conflict with some of the other editors at the company about how to arrange certain things. Like we had an article in one of them, like the top 50 coolest aliens of all time. And I remember Pat saying that Galactus should be near the top of the list because isn't he awesome? He eats planets, blah, blah. And I was like, look, as a comic book fan, I think Galactus is awesome. And I want to see him eating planets and, and whatever. As a sci-fi fan, that's maybe a little goofy. It's this 50-foot purple dressed guy who's in a miniskirt really sucking up all planets. It's a little goofy when if you read a lot of actual sci-fi novels. And that that was that was a dark day. That was <laughs> for me to actually say Galactus is goofy did not go over well. So yeah, it was it it I recommend people read hard sci-fi. There's some great stuff out there. Yeah, and I mean it should be mentioned that in t- the first 3 issues there is no mention of comic books or anything really at all. Although that does come up a little bit later, but it's interesting too because this issue also this third one, you know, didn't have a lot of comedy. It made me wonder if you took that first letter to heart. There wasn't as much here. Maybe unintentional humor though. I feel like could be mined. You guys had an article where you interviewed the guy who played Motaro, who was the centaur from Mortal Kombat Annihilation. It felt like a, a step down from Mark Hamill, maybe. <laughs> well, that movie at the time was a lot of fun. So we were <laughs> at the time, it seemed like a really fun interview. I'm sure in the annals of history that does not rank, but I don't think there was a concerted effort to drop the humor. I think we were just trying to shove as much more uh, uh, content in there as we could um, that we could hang our hats on. I guarantee you, we didn't listen to that guy's uh, letter in any way. <laughs> With Three issues under your belt at this point. You guys are going into 1998. In terms of the future of Sci-Fi Invasion, were things looking good? Did you see the circulation numbers come in? Like, was it promising? What was the reaction you were getting? The magazine was not doing well. To uh, touch back on what I said earlier, I think what we were lacking, like we, we had low sales in the direct market, which is the comic book stores we sold into. That wasn't really truly our audience. And in the newsstand, the sell-through was was low. It wasn't losing money. It wasn't a disaster, but it also wasn't like, well, can we come up with other things to fill these production slots that would make more money than this? I really do think that we did not give the readers enough of a reason to buy the magazine. There were so many other sources for news. And I don't just mean other magazines like Starlog, but I mean like Entertainment Weekly was there and they got access to shows in ways that we could never dream of. In fact, I remember that for that uh, uh, X-Files cover, I worked with the woman at 20th Century Fox Television to get a whole bunch of content for the X-Files. Like we were going to do this interview here. We were going to have a sidebar about an FBI agent actually thinks what he thinks about the show and about all this stuff. And they're like, okay, let me get back to you. And she didn't get back to me. And five weeks later, almost exactly as I pitched to her, was that content in Entertainment Weekly the FBI agent, everything. So really the industry wizard, we're used to getting the red carpet treatment. It's wizard and comics, blah, blah. But here, very small potatoes. So we did not get that insider uh, content with the news and breaking coverage that we wanted to. And the fun stuff was fun, but there was no collectible aspect to it where people had to tune in and see what the collectibles were doing. And uh, yeah, it just really never took off, dot, 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 which I, you know, spoiler alert, the magazine's not still around, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 the, the writing was, was slowly being written on the wall by this point. It did feel like, though, you were trying to compete with some of these movie magazines because with issue four, that spring 1998 issue, finally, you know, Babylon 5 is getting the cover. Okay, tried and true. People want to know about Babylon 5, they'll go to Sci-Fi Invasion. Uh, But there was also an exclusive Lost in Space movie preview booklet and a Lost in Space trading card. So people remember that movie coming out. Gary Oldman (laughs) in a movie, you know, and everybody. That was was a big one. Um, But the main features of that issue were a lot of inner interviews now with actors from these shows so like tracy scoggins was joining the cast of babylon 5 the cancer man from the x-files is getting an interview finally george takei from star trek and and j michael straczynski also back to share the details of that fifth season that you're talking about that maybe didn't turn out quite as good i believe the Ted Turner had something to do with giving them their fifth season. But why 
in your mind, did it take this long to score an interview with a Star Trek cast member? Because you had interviewed like a producer and, you know, small people here and there. But like to get George Takei, like, you know, a legendary cast member for you, it feels like that would have been like a priority as a lifelong Trek fan. I think the idea was to interview one per issue in like a two page spread, not a major article, but a two page spread. And it turned out at the time that these actors were not exactly, you know, active in Hollywood to the point where you could call their agent and set something up. So getting a hold of them was not as easy as you'd think. Um, we uh, had a good connection with George Takai because at the time he was heavily pushing for a Sulu TV show with him as the captain of the Excelsior. And it was something he was always talking about. And so he was very open to people contacting him and doing uh, uh, interviews. So we were and he was he was a great guy in person. And he gave us many helpful tips on journalism because he was a journalist once. And we were like, oh, thanks for that. But you know, at the same time, we were also conscious of the fact that you almost feel bad for these Star Trek actors because they have been asked in every interview the same questions for like 40, 50 years. And I didn't want to do that again. And then without things like George Takai saying, I'm pushing for an Excelsior show, you know, the, the reasons to talk to someone on this particular issue weren't always there. And I didn't want to just do it just because they had done the show like 40 years ago. Like I remember, I think we interviewed, I want to say, I want to say William Shatner, but then maybe it wasn't for Invasion, maybe it was for a different magazine. The question I had the writer ask was, what is the one question you've been waiting a reporter to ask you all these years that you can't believe no one's ever asked you. And he was like, oh, you know, I, I don't even know. I've been asked so many, I don't, I don't know. Like they, they've been asked every question. So we didn't, we didn't want to just drag these people out for no reason. Fair enough. Yeah. I think that, that shows a lot of respect. Although I'm imagining George, uh, George Shakai giving you those tips. He's like, you know, people don't <laughs> enjoy wise ass remarks. <laughs> But you guys did your best, you stuck with what you knew, and there was plenty of comedy in this issue. You brought back Brian Douglas Ahern for something that I find hilarious, because Seven of Nine had just been added to, you know, the cast of Voyager to help boost ratings there. And so you guys basically said, what if other primetime sitcoms did the same thing? We're going to put Borg in all these popular shows, you know, so there's like Locutus and Butthead. <laughs> You have NYPD Hugh. Oh, there's a deep shot there. Pinky and the Borg, which I love. Party of Seven of Nine. <laughs> suddenly Assimilated instead of Suddenly Susan, a sitcom nobody remembers. But I mean, this stuff is hilarious. I mean, the other one is kind of fun, which is Beetleborgs, because there was the big bad Beetleborgs. It's just like, it has Borg in the title. We're just going <laughs> to, easy on us. But You know, I looked at this piece of artwork and one of the shot for the NYPD Blue, which is NYPD Hugh, is the two main characters looking over as a Borg, I assume Hugh, is mooning them. Like Borg's <laughs> butt. And I'm like, what the hell? What was that? And I have a vague memory that at the time, NYPD Blue made history by having like someone, the actor's nude butt on screen on like primetime TV. Oh my God, where's this country going? Kind of a story. So that <laughs> at the time, that's what was, was being talked about with that show. And yeah, we got, so if anyone ever wants to see what might be the only piece of artwork where Borg is showing his ass, you got to go to eBay and get this issue of Sci-Fi Invasion. <laughs> Yes, that was definitely Detective Sipowitz in the shower. Yeah, butt shot. That's what it was all about. Now, also adding some fun is another one of your contest of champions situations. And you were pitting Godzilla against a T-Rex, which everybody's favorite dinosaur came out on top. Beat Godzilla? T-Rex doesn't have, like, you know, the atomic breath or anything? That one seems unlikely. <laughs> was, that, was that one the Godzilla from the Matthew Broderick movie or the classic Godzilla? The next issue, you guys talk about Godzilla. So I maybe you were thinking of that, but it looked like classic from what I recall here. So uh, I have no knowledge. I can't defend it. I can't explain it. But T-Rex would not beat the classic Godzilla. I have no idea. All right. But we do have another top 10 list to get in here. And it is once again, Star Wars related. And uh, it is once again, Sith related because we have the top 10 Emperor Palpatine's top 10 New Year's resolutions. So number 10, buy myself a new stick. Old one, get dirty. He has a stick? What? His his walking stick. <laughs> okay. Uh, number nine, stop foreseeing Princess Leia swimming naked. 
Number eight, call Harlan Ellison and hang up on him. You did not want to do that. Uh, seven, crush hope, enslave the masses, and renew AARP membership. Number six, stop putting Ewoks in the microwave. Number five, four words, no more Death Stars. Gotta learn your lesson at some point. Number four, add more fruits and vegetables to diet. Yeah, not a healthy complexion there. Number three, get rid of those pasty-faced imperial dignitaries and get me some Greedo chick groupies. Did Greedo have groupies? Are you saying people from Greedo's race? Is that what he's saying? I think I'm referring to the Greedo backup singer in Jabba's new musical number in the uh, Return of the Jedi special edition. There we go. Okay. <laughs> uh, number two, party with B5 shadows. Those guys rock. All right. Can you explain that one to me? Who's well, B5? That's B5 Babylon 5 reference in a Star Wars top 10 list. Oh. Uh, the show is basically about the war between these two ancient races, the Shadows and the Vorlons. The long story. Very cool show. Check it out. You won't be able to, but try. <laughs> and number one, spend quality time with my dark Jedi Knights, the Spice Girls. If you want to be my Jedi. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And I, I do want to point out that the name of this sidebar top 10 list is Top 10 Emperor Palpatine's Top 10 New Year's Resolutions. We said Top 10 twice. What the hell? We deserve to be canceled. What? <laughs> Who was the copy editor on this issue? <laughs> uh, I was out that day. I don't know. You guys also did mention a, a CBIQ style quiz now in this issue, the Area 52 pop quiz. So there's plenty of science fiction trivia there. Uh, but let's move into our fifth and final issue. Okay, as we're getting into the home stretch here, this hit in the summer of 1998. You had Agents Mulder and Scully from the X Files on the cover, as you said, and. Uh, this issue included the first and last action figure exclusive offered by Sci-Fi Invasion in the form of Captain Picard, but in a green uniform from the episode Tapestry 2. Do you guys remember how you settled on that figure to be your mail-away offer? Well, anyone that remembers Toy Farm Magazine remembers that we had toy exclusives all the time. And if they really studied the exclusives, you would see that we always used recolored or repurposed existing figures. Because asking a company to retool a figure and make new molds was prohibitively expensive. So we just recolored stuff. And I believe that at the time, we pointed out that, that, that hey, there was a flashback where he wore a different colored shirt. And, and wow, wouldn't that be amazing? And then there you go. That's That was our first and only exclusive. I have no idea how well it sold. I'll have to look on eBay to see if those are uh, being passed around. That's what I was going to say. It's got to be one of those that those Playmates or Star Trek collectors are really going after. It's like, no, what are you, the fifth issue of Sci-Fi Invasion? What? Huge uh, friends of the company. It was, that was cool. Also in the poly bag of that final issue, you guys went out with a bang because there was a printed poster with a map of vacation spots, okay, <laughs> that were inspired by science fiction films. Yes. So, you know, there, there was stuff like, what do we have here? We have uh, go to San Francisco because that's where Starfleet High Command was based, right? Or how about Blade Runner? You know, go to L.A. because it was set in L.A. You go to central Montana, not too far from me, because Flight of the Phoenix had something there. What, what, what do they say here? Oh, it says, when visiting, avoid the Zephyrm Cochran stood here sign. Standing <laughs> wasn't the only thing he did there. Or go to Detroit, because Robocop's from there. So do you remember coming up with this poster and why you thought this was going to be a, <laughs> something people wanted to put on their walls and plan their summer around? We really were working hard to come up with ideas for fun things to put in the poly bag. And it wasn't that easy because we owned none of these properties. We couldn't just say like, oh, let's do a Star Wars poster or something. Because again, uh, Lucasfilm was like, who are you again? What, you want to do a poster? What? Okay, give us this money. And we're like, I don't know. So that was that issue's attempt to have fun, something fun and interesting that they couldn't get anywhere else in the polybag. And did that help drive sales? Looking back, I doubt it. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun making it. And that's great. Made some memories along the way. Now, this issue features, like we were talking about, uh, an article all about the Roland Emmerich Godzilla film that features not a hint of Godzilla, just all the cast members. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, 10 lesser known sci-fi films that you guys were suggesting people should check out stuff like The Hidden or Starman or things like that. Life, Life Force, yes. 
and an interview with the alien designer H.R. Giger, and even a review of that experience, the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas, which my brother and sister-in-law went to back in the day. So I remember them telling me before it closed, they were huge. Actually, my my sister-in-law used to be the head of the Imperial fan club, and she was actually interviewed by David Letterman for one of his bits back in the day. Letterman, yeah. But the other thing that I found really interesting, speaking of my sister-in-law, because she was the one that showed this to me back in the day, because she's just so deep in the fandom. You guys have a, a very large article about all the fan films that were starting to get made. Especially, it starts out talking about the cops parody Troops, yeah. <laughs> featuring stormtroopers. And I remember how big fan films suddenly became in this era and going into the early 2000s. There were like websites devoted to it because everybody wanted to check them out did you have a favorite or do you remember seeing some passed around back in the day it really was troops was it for me because no one had done anything like that since hardware wars and like whatever that was 1980 1979 and it's hard to conceive nowadays that this is before youtube this is for before content creators and influencers made their own films every day millions of them the idea that someone had the the crew the money the time uh, uh, the support system to create an actual parody of Star Wars based on cops, but call it troops, was was an oh my god moment, and it was hilarious and it was awesome. And you know, I do remember even in Hollywood that that opened a lot of doors to those people. And as more people made fan videos like that, the doors didn't open as far because it became passe, like everyone was doing it. But that was a huge thing when Troops came out. And it must be online. People should watch it. It's really cool. Yeah, it's got to be at this point. But also, I remember, like, for the Star Trek fandom, it was a huge thing, too, because there were people producing, like, a series, like a full Star Trek series, and you would get actual cast members, you know, like Walter Koenig and people like that, would appear in these Star Trek fan series. That that was just amazing to think about back in the day. That is batshit insane and it is still going on and any star trek fan worth their salt knows that there was a huge controversy a few years ago where uh, paramount slash cbs actually put a stop to a lot of it and uh google that that is a, a fascinating legal kerfuffle with the fans that happened a few years ago it's really cool all right well we have finally come to it doug uh we are at the end of the journey. So we have to ask, first off, how did you learn that, that Sci-Fi Evasion would no longer be published? And was there a particular reason given? Did you pull the plug? How did that work? Well, we used to have management meetings every Thursday morning at 9.30, where all the heads of whatever departments and Garab Seamus at the front of the table would meet in the conference room, and we'd all go over our projects and what we're doing. And it came time to me with specials, and uh, Paul, I don't remember his last name, was asked to, to go over the most recent sales. And the sales for Sci-Fi Invasion number five were not all that. And no one had been talking positively about the magazine internally. The ad department had, I don't know if they still do it, but there's a company that makes checks that you can, uh, uh, based on like whatever design you want. And they put an ad in the magazine for like Star Trek checks or whatever. And they were shocked when it only got like a half dozen uh, uh, applications. So like, I, I paid all this money to put an ad in your magazine, got six. So, the mood was was not bright for the magazine. So somebody, Garib or Fred Pierce, the C, uh, CEO was like, so what are we going to do about sci-fi invasion? And I just kind of like deer in headlights him because I knew that that was it. But I didn't want to say it because I loved, I'm like, oh, I'm a sci-fi fan of my magazine. And I didn't say anything. And someone else was like, maybe we should just slot other things. And, and, then, it, and then it just went from there. And that was, you know, a sad little moment, but it had to happen. Do you feel like at least through five issues, did you get to accomplish what you wanted to do with the magazine or did you have more ideas? Do you, was there an evolution in mind you had for it? Something you would have added? Um, I would have loved to have gotten to the point where we could do uh, original material the same way Wizard got to do with the comic book industry. We never got to that point. I could never call up you know, such and such studio and say, hey, I know that your actor's on set filming. Can we send a photographer down there and do something fun, you know, blah, blah, blah. That we never got close to that. And I don't think we ever really could have. You had to be, you know, Vanity Fair got exclusive Star Wars prequel group cover photos. You know, we we were never going to do that. But aside from that, we just wanted to have fun with sci-fi and we did do that. So on that level, we we did what we wanted to do. And you've hinted at some of the things you think maybe didn't set the world on fire, you know, that weren't included as part of that. Do you feel like, for example, the fact that 
you mentioned collectability. Obviously, Inquest, Toy Fair, Wizard all had a price guide attached to them. When you're covering the full breadth of sci-fi, you can't provide a price guide for every type of sci-fi collectible out there. Do you think that hurt the magazine? I, if there was one thing, like the sci-fi collectible, I, maybe that would have like that that would have changed on a monthly basis. Because yes, there are things you can collect with sci-fi enough that you could pick the one thing and put it in the magazine every month. No, it's it's um, there isn't anything like that. And I'm sure, yeah, if something like that existed, if there was another great reason why people had to buy the magazine each month, you know, would that have been enough to keep the magazine going? Sure. <laughs> now, after the cancellation of Sci-Fi Evasion, though, did you already have your next project, Tunes Magazine, in development? I don't know if it was in development at that time. I have to be honest and say I think Tunes was born out of the desire to find more ways to make money off Pokemon because we wanted to put Pikachu on the cover of more things. And we we're like, what about a magazine about cartoons? And it's like, he's a cartoon. Yes, do it. I think we got two or three issues of tunes out, I think. Yeah. So it was always a constant challenge to, to find, you know, we had to come up with 12 ideas for one shots every year. And sometimes we were pushing it and sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't work as well. Well, man, this has been a journey, Doug. It's been so fun, though, to reminisce with you and hear, again, how excited you were about it and what it meant to you. I'm glad that you got to head that magazine for as long as you did. I mean, really, two years worth of magazine? That's pretty good, right? Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. But what are you working on these days that you want to point people to? I'm working on two projects being pitched. So I can't say check them out. I would love to give you the email addresses to the development people who I'm going to be meeting with. So you can say like, you got to buy this great idea, but I can't. So just wait, wait to see me. Hopefully these things will catch and we'll see. We'll spread the word. Definitely. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hey, live long and prosper, Doug. And to you. <laughs>